Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 3.27, Fort Necessity and the Albany Congress. Welcome back. Last time, we left off with twin events taking place as the colonies began working on setting the chess pieces for what looked like an increasingly inevitable conflict between the British colonies and the French. Although the Iroquois were in decline by this point, everybody could recognize their importance to any conflict that may occur in the Ohio country. Therefore, before war actually broke out, it was critical that the British colonists assured that the Iroquois alliance would be with them rather than the French. This would take on a couple of different manifestations. Virginia, for example, sent the 21-year-old George Washington out as a special emissary. While Virginia was doing its own thing, a major diplomatic mission was also taking place up in Albany, New York, where the colonies were meeting to discuss the situation. This week, we are going to spend our time looking at the diplomatic mission taking place, both in Virginia and in Albany. We are going to start today by looking at Washington's attempts to secure these alliances. However, briefly, before we move forward, I would like to establish some timeline for everybody just so we all know where we are. Washington was officially named the Emissary for Virginia on October 31, 1753. Washington wasted zero time and appears to have left for his mission that very same day. The Congress in Albany took place in June 1754. Washington's mission, which we are going to discuss in depth momentarily, was in an exceptionally dire place when the colonies met at Albany. We have an absolute ton to cover today, meaning that this episode is going to be on the long side. So let's jump right on in and start working through it. As mentioned just a moment ago, Washington officially set out on his mission on October 31st, 1753, the same day that he received his orders. The first part of the mission for Washington was spent getting allies over to his side. Certainly, it would be a poor showing for some 21-year-old to attempt to evict the French on his own. Washington, therefore, picked up some help along the way, including our old friend, Christopher Gist. For Washington, Gist was there to be a guide into the Ohio country. The real allies that Washington wanted to secure were going to be from the local tribes. The Iroquois may be in decline. However, that does not mean that they were toothless. George Washington appealed directly to Tana Grissom for help. Unfortunately, there was not much in the way of help to come, as Tana Grissom only produced four men, including himself. Tana Grissom was a powerful partner to be sure, but this was likely not the intimidating force that Washington would have preferred. In a moment of trying to figure out exactly how he got into this position, Washington decided that this was actually better. Nobody was going to confuse them as a hostile force now, because who was going to lead an attack with, like, six guys? Regardless, Washington and his small escort of men were on their way to tell the French that they needed to get out of the Ohio country. George Washington and his contingent made their first contact with the French in early December, though the more significant contact would come just a little later, when they reached Fort LeBeuf. It was there that Washington met Captain Jacques de Gardard, Saint-Pierre. It was to Saint-Pierre that Washington delivered his letter from the king. During the next few days, Washington hung around and waited for a response, 
while he visually scouted the area and made mental notes regarding French defenses. Unsurprisingly, Saint-Pierre was less than excited to pack up and vacate the area. Rather, he provided the young Washington with a letter of his own that he was charged to return to Governor Dinwiddie. After a somewhat harrowing trip back to Williamsburg, one that saw Washington and Gist nearly drown while crossing a river, and a journey that saw a few of their Indian guides turn on them and attempt to shoot them, Washington delivered the letter from St. Pierre to Dinwiddie. For Dinwiddie, the letter he got back in response clarified the already obvious fact that the French had zero intention of going anywhere. With the French, predictably, having rejected the British demands to vacate the Ohio country, Dinwiddie acknowledged that the ball was back into his court. The French had made the resolve known. They were going to continue to construct forts throughout the region, regardless of the British feelings on the matter. It was imperative that the British do the same. Dinwiddie, still dealing with internal political bickering, had to act quickly. He ordered that the planned fort along the forks of the Ohio begin construction immediately rather than wait until the spring as the plan had originally been. At the same time, Dinwiddie authorized the expansion of the Virginia militia as conflict loomed. It was after this ramp-up for war that Dinwiddie got around to calling the House of Burgesses to discuss the small matter of actually paying for everything. With nobody really wanting to be the one to interfere with an ongoing war effort, they approved the funding for the coming fight while at the same time ensuring that they had oversight over the entire ordeal. Pleased with the work of Washington, Dinwiddie was quick to grant the young man command over a 100-man militia company, which Washington was to raise and train with the express purpose of heading into the Ohio and establishing British forts. Though for the first time in his life, Washington was now in a leadership position, we also come across two issues that would cause Washington some considerable annoyance with the British leadership. First was the issue of colonial pay. Washington, for his earlier efforts, was paid just 50 pounds. This paltry sum did little more than cover the cost of the journey. We are going to see that time and time again during the conflict, Washington is going to complain about the low rate of colonial pay. What really seems to have rankled Washington more than anything is the fact that the colonials made less than the regulars. More than simply being a matter of wanting compensation for his work, to Washington, this entire episode was deeply disrespectful. Besides getting himself the command over some 100 men, Washington would also receive a promotion to the position of lieutenant colonel. However, this would also soon become a sore point for Washington. The overall command of the Virginia Regiment was given to Joshua Fry. Fry held the rank of a colonel, meaning that Washington outranked him. There was one key difference, however. Fry's commission was a royal commission, meaning that it came through the regular British Army. The effect of this was that, despite having the lower rank, Fry could issue orders directly to Washington. This brings us to a critical point that would infuriate not just Washington, but provincial officers all throughout the colonies. In the eyes of the British leadership, the colonial officers were less than their British regular counterparts. As with the pay, Washington was again forced to face the reality that the empire was determined to ensure that he was something less than the British regulars.
anger over his pay and rank aside. On April 2nd, 1754, Washington and roughly 160 men began their journey to the Forks of the Ohio. Shortly after the journey began, Washington received some ominous news. The French were pouring into the area. They had stormed the British fort along the forks and forced the surrender of the men building it. The French captured the fort and renamed it Fort Duquesne. With the French rapidly growing their influence and ability to project military power in the region, by the end of May, Washington would receive news that the enemy was just 20 miles away from him. Despite the warnings of proximity with the French, Washington quickly became concerned that he might be working with poor intelligence. His men had reported hearing frequent rustling noises. Christopher Gist had reported that a group of French had been spotted near his cabin. Finally, it was Tana Grisson who confirmed that rather than 20 miles away, the French were now a mere seven miles away. Washington, now aware that the French were practically right on top of him, decided that he needed to prepare for an inevitable meeting. He chose a spot known as the Great Meadows, located just to the southeast of modern-day Uniontown, Pennsylvania. It was here that he was going to make his stand. It is also right here where we are going to see just how inexperienced the young Washington really was. Knowing that the French were so close, and presumably with more than his fair share of nerves, Washington, likely with the urging of Tanna Grisson, decided that the best defense would be a good offense. Along with 40 men, Washington and Tanna Grisson set out to find that French band that had been heard rustling around their camp. On May 28th, the men came upon a French camp that had some 35 or so Frenchmen in it. Washington, believing that the French were preparing for their own ambush of his men, decided that he had no real other choice than to attack first. With that, the decision was made. They were going to attack the French position and not wait for the French to be the ones leading the ambush. It is worth mentioning that Tanagrisson appears to have already known where this camp was, meaning that Washington likely did not just stumble across this camp by accident, but rather he was led there. Placing himself at the head of the column, Washington led his men forward towards the encampment. It is here where events become murky, and for good reason. The events that were about to take place would mark a critical moment on the march to war. However, as we are going to see in just a moment, there are several versions out there of exactly what occurred. So, let's look at what we know happened, and then from there, we're going to look at the competing stories to try to make sense of exactly how all of this went down. At some point on Washington's approach, somebody fired a shot. As is so often the case, and not for the final time in this podcast, it is not entirely clear if it was the British or the French who fired the opening salvo, though predictably each side would point the finger at the other for having pulled the trigger first. After a brief firefight, one that lasted less than 15 minutes, the British had gained a clear advantage. The British had the all-important high ground, and with the French not wanting to play Anakin Skywalker to the British Obi-Wan Kenobi, they surrendered. At the end of the battle, the French had 10 dead, compared to just a single man killed on the British side. Most critically, amongst the dead was French ensign Joseph Colon de Jumonville, 
Zhu Monville was playing virtually the same role that Washington had just some months earlier. He was an emissary, carrying with him a letter informing the British that they needed to evacuate from the Ohio country and stop infringing on French territorial claims. And now he was dead. For George Washington, he suddenly found himself as the commander of a minor skirmish, which had quickly ballooned into a full-fledged international incident. Okay, so this is a really big deal. The obvious elephant in the room, aside from George Washington's participation, is that the British just led a raid that resulted in the death of a French emissary. Rules of conduct were pretty clear. You don't kill the messenger. This was always going to be a big deal, and was going to be something touted around by the other party to justify further aggressions, or even outright war. We sent an emissary with a critical message that the British just killed in cold blood. That was something that could, and indeed did, spark outrage back in France. It is impossible to think that Washington missed the fact that just a few months earlier, he had been performing the same job as Jumonville. Except that when he did it, the French did not ambush him. With pretty much everybody realizing that the death of Jumonville was indeed a problem, what quickly followed was a whole lot of finger-pointing. So, let's take a moment and look at the different versions of the story. The French version of what took place was that shortly after French troops woke up, they found the Virginian soldiers moving into position. Quickly, gunfire erupted as the two sides engaged. Jumonville, not looking for a fight, called out quickly that he was a French envoy and that this group was merely on a diplomatic mission. The French claimed that at this point the gunfire ceased as the Virginians moved into the encampment and surrounded Jumonville and the French. There, Jumonville read his message that the British needed to get out of the Ohio country. Per the French version of the story, this is when one of the British promptly shot Jumonville in the head, killing him where he stood. Washington's version of the events are considerably different. The official British version has the French spotting the Virginia troops and immediately going for their weapons. This spurred the British to open fire. After a brief exchange of gunfire, the French surrendered. Per Washington, Jumonville was killed along with nine others. Another man was wounded and the rest were taken as prisoners. Washington claimed that following the attack, the Indians that were with him proceeded to scalp the dead. What is interesting about Washington's report of what clearly was a pretty serious situation, as well as the first firefight of his life, is just how little he said. Well, I admit that I am summarizing his official report, there really is not that much more to it. They approached the French, the French went to attack, Washington's men returned fire, Jumonville died. Done. End of story. For the importance of what had happened, it is a shockingly slim report. Another version of events came from John Shaw, a Virginian who was not actually there at the battle, but was relaying the events as he had been told. In an affidavit signed by Shaw, he claims that he had talked to many others who had actually been there that day with Washington. In this version, he claims that the French attempted to flee from the battle. However, upon scattering, they found the escape routes were blocked by the Indians. The men fell back towards the center and requested a ceasefire. It was then that Tanagrisson himself approached with a tomahawk 
and personally shatter Jumonville's skull. With multiple competing versions, it becomes very difficult to figure out which one actually provides the truth, if any do at all. It is actually the version supplied by John Shaw that appears to have received the most acceptance. There are a few reasons for this. First, despite not having been there, Shaw's version was supported by several of those who had in fact been there. According to historian David Dixon, there is also the fact that symbolically had Tana Grissin killed Jumonville with a tomahawk, that would have represented the official end of the peace between the French and the Ohio tribes. Dixon further points out that the mere casualties from muskets seems to be out of balance here, further suggesting that there may have been a more direct assault. The state of 18th century muskets left something to be desired when it came to accuracy. Dixon points out that reports are consistent that 10 Frenchmen were killed and only a single was injured. The balance does seem suspect, considering the complete lack of accuracy that came with muskets in the 1750s. One would think that there should be more of a mixture of dead and wounded, rather than 10 of the 11 casualties proving to be fatal. Washington's own report omitting details regarding an Indian assault may reflect the fact that the young Washington did not want it to seem like events had gotten away from him. Washington further continued to insist that the French were not mere emissaries, but rather had been spies. Either way, Washington was desperate to paint a rosy picture over what had been a disaster. Regardless of exactly how Jumonville was killed, it was a debacle for Washington. Washington and his men had engaged and killed a French emissary on a diplomatic mission. In the court of European opinion, Washington had just given the French a massive gift. He had given them justification for hostilities. The French could, and indeed did, spin the Jumonville affair as proof of the aggressive actions of the British. As Washington attempted to come to terms with what had happened and explain his own conduct, he quickly realized that he now had a new problem entirely. A French emissary was dead. Washington was, at a very minimum, nominally responsible for his death. It was not as though the French could ignore what had happened. There was always going to be some kind of retribution. Washington returned to the Great Meadow to the fortification that was being built. Named Fort Necessity, it was not exactly an impressive sight. The walls of the circular fort stood only about 7 feet high, and it had a total diameter of only about 50 feet. This was only big enough to hold some 70 men, with the rest being put into trenches outside of the main fort. Now, generally speaking, Fort Necessity was in a horrible spot. It was in a valley surrounded by hills. Tana Grissom, who was a far more skilled warrior, did his best to clue Washington into the fact that he was building a fort in a virtually indefensible position. Then, just to add to an already stressful situation, on May 31st, Colonel Joshua Fry, the man who was in charge over the entire Virginia regiment, died unexpectedly. Washington, who was increasingly in over his head by this point, now found himself as the commander of the Virginia regiment. Despite everything else that was already going on, Washington still had visions of an attack on Fort Duquesne. He had received some meager reinforcements of men and weapons. 
However, he appears to have believed that far larger numbers were still going to join up in the near future. For the time being, until those reinforcements arrived, Washington felt that his best move was to attempt to recruit local tribes to his cause. After a difficult mid-June march to Christopher Gist's trading post, Washington, Gist, and Tana Grisson met with representatives of the Delaware, Mingo, and Shawnee. None of these tribes had any interest in getting involved in a war between European powers. For Washington, the failure to recruit other tribes was not the major blow that came out of this. The bigger problem is that upon returning to Fort Necessity, Tanagrisson decided that he was not excited about the prospect of dying inside the small pile of logs that Washington called a fort. It was obvious that a battle was coming and that Fort Necessity probably would not be the best place to hole up when it did. Recognizing a completely lost cause, Tanagrisson packed up his family and got out while he still could. Washington received a bit of a reprieve when James Innes was selected to lead the Virginia Regiment, as well as the North Carolina Regiment. However, by the end of June 1754, the situation was dire, and Innes was going to be too far away to get there in time. On June 28th, Washington received intelligence that his location was about to be overwhelmed. He was told to expect some 800 French and 400 Indians to arrive shortly. The attack came on the morning of July 3rd. The French force was commanded by Louis Colon de Villers. If you are wondering where Villers got his motivation from, just know that he is the older brother of French emissary Jumonville. Attacking in three columns from elevated positions, Washington and company could do little more than hunker down in their small fort. Though later in life he would omit this fact, one of the saving graces for Washington was that morning the British regulars did stand and fight. Critically, this prevented a complete slaughter of the Virginia Regiment. By the afternoon, a driving rainstorm had hit Fort Necessity, turning the small fort into a mire. Without a closed ceiling, the men inside the fort became drenched, as did the flint and ammunition. By the end of the day, the situation was a catastrophe. The British had suffered over 100 casualties, compared to the French who saw just 17 wounded and 3 dead. The number of British casualties was roughly one-third of those under Washington's command. It was an absolutely devastating loss that was only going to be compounded by the coming surrender. As night fell, the French were ready to discuss a surrender, something that the British were pretty eager to accept. In the pouring rain, Washington, who really had little choice in the matter, signed the instrument of surrender. The problem, however, came in the instrument's language. The surrender clarified that the assault had come as retribution for the assassination of Jumonville. Now, in the world of treaties and surrenders, language really matters. By signing the document, Washington was accepting British responsibility for the assassination of a foreign diplomat. It is not entirely clear how such a mistake came to be either. It was pouring rain that night and likely difficult to read. Likewise, Washington did not know any French, and it is possible that there was a misinterpretation by their interpreter. It is worth noting that the interpreter was not especially fluent in English, opening up the chance that he misinterpreted assassination as death. 
Regardless of the reason, it was yet another tremendous blow for Washington. The article of surrender was apparent proof on the world stage that the British were the aggressors. They were the ones who opened up hostilities, and the French were simply fighting a defensive war. For George Washington, the entire mission had been a series of disasters. From Jumonville to Fort Necessity, to failing to bring more tribes to his side, and ultimately, the humiliating defeat and surrender of the fort. Everything that could go wrong for Washington really did. About the only victory for him was that he personally survived the battle. Despite this first test for Washington not going well, we obviously know that we are not done with him in our story. Not by a long shot. In fact, he is not yet done with the French and Indian War. And we are going to be spending significant time with him again during our next episode. During that episode, we are also going to spend time talking about his rehabilitation in the immediate aftermath of the debacle at Fort Necessity. We are going to leave George Washington here for right now and travel north to Albany, where we check in on what is going on at the Congress there. As George Washington was dealing with problems down in the South, the other plan for 1754 was that Congress in Albany. The plan for the meeting had been made back in 1753. However, the colonies were not in a terrible rush to actually do the thing, much to the annoyance of the Board of Trade back in London. Let's consider for just a moment why the colonies were dragging their feet so much. I have stated this before, but it is worth repeating that the colonies really were not super excited about working together. The colonies were all separate entities that were very much in competition with one another. If Pennsylvania could undercut Connecticut, they were more than happy to do just that. Britain was totally fine with this dynamic. They had very little interest in intercolonial cooperation and were happy to have the colonies competing with one another. With an increasingly sizable population and diverse economy, you would not want the colonies to get, you know, any crazy ideas that they might survive and thrive without the British entirely. By keeping the colonies firmly separated, it kept them all far more individually reliant upon the British. However, 1754 was an exceptional moment. Britain was looking at a very real risk of a major conflict breaking out with the French. This means that for the British, it suddenly made a whole lot more sense to encourage at least a moderate amount of colonial cooperation to fight a looming French threat. Sending troops across the Atlantic is an expensive and logistical nightmare. If the colonists could pick up most of the fighting while being supplemented by British regulars and officers, that would make everything much easier and far cheaper. In this situation, dealing with a marginally more unified set of colonies versus multiple separate distinct entities made the entire thing operate far smoother. The purpose of the Congress in Albany was twofold. First, it was attempting to repair the declining relations with the Iroquois Confederacy. Second, it laid the groundwork for an agreement between the colonies to coordinate their efforts to defend against French incursion. By the time that May had rolled around, word of Virginia sending Washington into the Ohio country to establish their foothold was a known fact. Furthermore, it was known just how dire the situation had become. Benjamin Franklin reported on May 9, 1754 on the French that were now pouring into the forks of the Ohio. 
Benjamin Franklin was an unabashed supporter of closer colonial cooperation, and suddenly he had found his moment. It is in May 1754 that Franklin first published one of the most famous political cartoons in American history. Franklin had printed a picture of a cut-up snake. Each segment of the snake represented a different colony. The slogan was simple, join or die. I'll go ahead and post the cartoon on the website along with this episode, though I am sure most of you have seen this before. Set to take place in June, Franklin held grand designs on pushing the subject of colonial partnership for the matter of defense and beyond. Now, before we get into the substance of the Congress, I want to make a couple points about the colonies who were in attendance. The colonies that actually showed up were Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Maryland, New York, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. Immediately, a couple of things jump out. First, the southern colonies were completely absent. The Carolinas and Georgia were not even invited. We discussed at length last episode why Virginia did not show up. New Jersey skipped out, believing that they were not actually going to be affected much by frontier matters which, in all fairness to them, they were nicely buffered by the other British colonies on all of their borders. They did not invite Delaware, as Delaware was still part of Pennsylvania. Interestingly, neither Connecticut nor Rhode Island were invited to the conference, but they decided to just go ahead and show up anyway. It is also worth noting that the delegate from Rhode Island is Stephen Hopkins, the future governor of that colony and a future signer of the Declaration of Independence. Beginning on June 19, 1754, and lasting until July 11, the Albany Congress really struck at the very core of what the colonies were lacking in cohesion and unity. The delegates arriving in Albany were all aware of the seriousness of the situation. They had all heard of Jumonville by this point, and before the conference was over, they would learn about the battle at Fort Necessity. Yet, if the rapidly worsening conditions along the western frontier were a concern to them, they certainly did not show it. As to that first aim of repairing the strained relations with the Iroquois, the colonies were able to nominally accomplish that end. The Iroquois were represented by Chief Hendrick, a member of the Mohawk tribe who made clear that the Iroquois opposed the British securing permanent settlements in the Ohio as well. By the end of the Congress, the Iroquois would confirm that the Covenant Chain, that long-standing peace between the Iroquois and the English, was renewed. In that way, at least, Albany on the surface was a partial success. However, the situation is in reality much more complicated. While they understood French incursion was the reason they were all there, the Iroquois wanted to curb British expansionism as well. The Iroquois also wanted to attempt to check the trade of arms to non-Iroquois tribes in the Ohio. They complained that often these arms would come full circle and would be used against them. The colonists made these standard vague promises, that they respected the importance of the covenant chain and they wanted to renew it. The Iroquois were not bargaining from a position of strength at Albany, and undoubtedly understood that at the moment the French were a far greater risk than the British. This left them with little option other than to agree to maintain their alliance with the British colonists. Yet, even as a formal agreement was reached, 
the seeds of dissension were being laid from a series of poor land deals made at the conference. A land speculation group from Connecticut that was conveniently made up of the same men who were sent as delegates was able to cut a backroom deal with the Iroquois to purchase a huge tract of land along the upper Susquehanna River in what was known as the Wyoming Territory. The deal was riddled with corruption. Negotiations involved getting every Iroquois chief they could find as drunk as possible, to the point where they were willing to sell their land and give no meaningful pushback. Combine that with various bribes and a final payment of 2,000 pounds. And just like that, Connecticut had purchased approximately 5 million acres. Connecticut was not the only colony interested in using this moment to their advantage. Led by the Penn family, Pennsylvania also had designs on westward expansion. Pennsylvania officials worked out a deal whereby they could do away with all Iroquois claims within the Pennsylvania claim. They accomplished this for just 400 pounds. For the Iroquois, these were disastrous deals. They were deals that were rife with fraud and deception. They would prove to have long-term repercussions as well. The relationship between Pennsylvania, Connecticut, and the Iroquois would increasingly sour in the years to come. This is to say nothing of the large number of Delaware Indians that had resettled the Delaware Valley. This will, in due time, come back to bite everybody involved, something which we are going to be talking about in a future episode. Beyond making some dubious land deals with the Iroquois, the second push was towards what would become known as the Albany Plan of Union. Benjamin Franklin came into the Albany Congress convinced that the true path to prosperity and safety for the colonies was a union between them all. Franklin had loftier ambitions than simply the common defense. He writes in his autobiography that the plan of union that he had drafted was for both the common defense and other important general purposes. Franklin, to be clear, was not thinking of anything as radical as independence. Rather, he seems to have realized the benefits that would come with closer internal ties and cooperation. He further believed that the British should focus on the Ohio country and advocated for the creation of two new colonies. Franklin was not without his allies either. Chief amongst these allies was Thomas Hutchinson. A wealthy merchant and the great-grandson of Anne Hutchinson, Thomas also believed that greater cooperation would help establish North America as a critical component of the greater British Empire. In 1754, both Franklin and Hutchinson were looking at the empire and questioning what their roles in it were. Both men were highly ambitious and absolutely interested in how they could grow inside of the empire. Franklin was already the postmaster general, an extremely powerful individual position. Hutchinson had been something of a prodigy, graduating Harvard at just 16 years old, a young age, even for the time. He had likewise grown close to William Shirley, the governor of Massachusetts. Hutchinson, in time, would become the governor of Massachusetts himself. It is interesting to note that in 1754, these two men were allies. As we are going to see in the future, they will find themselves on very different sides of the revolution when it came and would end up becoming staunch opponents to each other. Hutchinson had good reason for wanting the plan of union. Massachusetts had been dealing with French and Indian wars for years now. 
King William's War, Queen Anne's War, and King George's War, had seen Massachusetts on the front lines the entire time. During this period, they had been forced to shoulder considerable expense. The hope by Hutchinson was that by having a union for the common defense, when the inevitable war did finally come, Massachusetts was not going to have to shoulder the majority of that burden by themselves. The plan of union that Franklin was calling for has a preview of future founding documents of the United States in it. Under Franklin's plan, there would have been a general government. The central government would handle matters such as common defense and westward expansion. Each individual colony would maintain its colonial government and would deal with concerns and justice at the local level. Franklin's government featured a central unicameral legislature, with population and wealth determining the number of representatives that each colony would receive. As for the actual representatives, they would be chosen by the individual colony. The executive of the system would be a president-general who would be appointed directly by the king. Franklin's plan was clearly audacious. Beyond the obvious nods to federalism, a system that would ultimately be adopted by the United States, it was a system that sought to clarify that one big question that still loomed over everything. It sought to help make clear the role of the North American British colonies in the Greater British Empire. Despite all of the shady deals going on while at Albany, there is clear evidence that those at the Congress realized the importance of the moment as well, and on July 10th, they approved the Plan of Union. The next day, the Albany Congress disbanded, with the delegates taking their plans back to their individual colonies for debate, and, Franklin hoped, ratification. Unfortunately for Benjamin Franklin, the Albany Plan of Union was not to be. Every single colony rejected the plan. There was frankly very little debate on the matter in any of the colonies either. Virginia outright ignored it, having no debate nor a vote. Pennsylvania was still a Quaker-dominated colony that had little interest in a pact that would force them to share more burden on military matters. Intelligently, the pacifist Quakers would hold their brief debate on the matter when Franklin was not around, promptly killing the bill. There is little evidence that New Hampshire or Georgia ever considered the bill, and in the case of Georgia, if they were even aware that it was a thing. Delaware, as they were still nominally controlled by Pennsylvania, did not get any say in the matter. Connecticut rejected the plan on the grounds that they were worried that had they gone along with it, it could put at risk those new holdings that they had acquired while in Albany. Rhode Island opposed the bill. Though, despite the opposition, they do not appear to have actually voted on it, so it was never officially rejected. The rest of the colonies, aside from Massachusetts, briefly considered the plan before all voting to reject it. Massachusetts was the only colony that would give meaningful consideration to the plan of union. Both William Shirley and Thomas Hutchinson championed the plan and would encourage the assembly to ratify it. Despite all the efforts, however, the Assembly would ultimately end up rejecting it, fearing that it stripped away too much autonomy from the individual colonies. They would attempt to propose a far weaker union that would expire six years after its creation. However, that would also fall flat. 
with the plant of Union dead in the colonies. It is also important to note that it would have been dead upon arrival in London. Sure, Britain was interested in some colonial cooperation when it came to defense. However, the plan of Union was going way further than London was ever going to allow. Parliament chafed at the idea of giving so much power to the colonies. Beyond that, the colonies becoming more united was something that, while pragmatically necessary in the moment, was not exactly a popular long-term solution for the empire. For the reasons we have previously detailed, the long-term plan sought to keep the colonies as competitors. The colonies entering into any kind of a common union with each other held the potential to create dangerous dissension in the future. Colonial uprisings had occurred in the past in North America. We only need to look at that period from 1675 until 1700. In those cases, the crown was dealing with individual colonies in rebellion. They were not interested in allowing the act of union to pass and facing a potential rebellion from the whole of the North American colonial system. For the British, long-term political practices still favored keeping the colonies as staunch competitors. Franklin was, as can be expected, disappointed by the decision of both the colonial assemblies and of Parliament. Franklin blamed the local assemblies for finding too much prerogative in the plan, whereas the Parliament found the plan to be too democratic. Franklin would later write his belief that had the Albany plan been adopted, it would have set off a chain of events that ultimately would have prevented the American Revolution. While that is a debatable issue to be sure, it is easy to read the frustration from Franklin on the matter. Parliament had no need for such a bold union of the colonies. By the time that the plan of union reached them, they had already decided to go with a far more heavy-handed approach. The British had appointed General Edward Braddock to take control over the war effort in North America. Along with him, they appointed William Johnson to play the role of Britain's official representative to treat with the Iroquois. The disasters of the previous spring had made abundantly clear that they needed more control over matters in North America. Among the powers that Johnson was granted, he was now in charge of establishing military alliances, as well as the power to cede land in the regions north of Virginia. The events of 1754 can only be described as disastrous for the colonists. They had, time and time again, proven themselves unable to rise to the occasion and deal with events. From the haphazard actions of Washington at Fort Necessity, to the shady land deals taking place in the shadows of Albany, the colonists had committed a series of mistakes that were not lost upon the British back across the Atlantic. At a moment where the colonists could have moved towards a union that would have likely made them all that much stronger, it was universally rejected without a second thought. The colonies were simply in a place where a history of competition meant that they could not even consider giving up any of their individual power, even if that result may have well benefited the whole. Next time, we are going to pick up with General Braddock, who is about to set out on one of the most memorable military expeditions in American history. With that, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you all back here next time as General Braddock sets out for a fateful march. March.